You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, Doug and Greg Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. We've got another hopefully fascinating episode this week. Really, between this, we're recording on August 29th, which anniversary of Katrina and Ida as an aside, but between last week and this week, a lot has happened. Two main storylines that are going on right now. Number one, Jay Powell, who's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, spoke last week. A lot of market anticipation of that event in terms of whether he was going to sound dovish, meaning the Federal Reserve is going to be more accommodative to markets and just accommodated from a monetary policy perspective or hawkish, meaning more aggressive, that they were going to tighten monetary controls a little bit faster than anticipated. The market was basically split 50-50 on what direction he was going to go and and he went the hawkish route. So if you were paying attention to your portfolio last week, it's likely that you saw a major decline Thursday and Friday. And then the second piece, and we'll take this to whatever direction you want to go, Greg, and, but the second piece is a lot of news around Europe and specifically what's going to happen this winter with electricity. The cost per megawatt hour for natural gas has gone parabolic. It's as one person we saw on Twitter proclaim that it's essentially like a barrel of oil costing $1,000 per barrel. And so the cost for these countries to sustain and keep the lights on and sustain business is getting expensive by the day. And so we'll just talk about some of the implication there. But where do you want to go first? Well, I think that both of these topics are fascinating. And I think that the dynamics that exist in the marketplace and the psychology of the monetary policymakers like the Fed is really interesting. I wouldn't hold too much into what the Fed chairman said on Friday in Jackson Hole 12 months ago at the same news conference, he was talking about how inflation would be transitory and here we are. So basically what he was saying in that particular piece was that the Fed is going to continue to look at evidence of inflation slowing down and they're not going to make any sort of accommodative steps until they see evidence that inflation and inflationary pressures are slowing down. We Just in our day-to-day discourse and our lives, et cetera. It looks like, at least for now, that inflation is calming down. And hopefully the, the Fed sees that in their, the necessary evidence and changes their course accordingly. But the market's really waiting to see how things are going to turn out and definitely was expecting to hear something a little bit less stern from the Fed chairman. Again, I think that's going to be one of the primary narratives that drives the markets in the short term. But again, long term, the famous quote from Ben Graham is, the market is a voting machine in the short term, and in the long term, it's a weighing machine, meaning that the fundamentals of the market and growth of assets and growth of earnings, et cetera, will outweigh the sort of whims of the psychology of the market. As it relates to Europe, first of all, I think when I was talking to my wife about the fact that the price of electricity and gas in Europe is basically going parabolic and people are really going to be suffering there in the short term and near term until the Russia-Ukraine conflict comes to a resolution. Her primary concern was for the global economy and how, just from the perspective of Americans in general, how important Europe is to the global economy. And what I replied back to her is, even though Europe has substantial cultural 
connections with the U.S. and as a cultural leader, I was surprised to learn over the last several months really about how they are important from a global economy perspective, but that really has diminished over the last 10 or 15 years or so. I mean, the euro right now and the dollar are basically at the same value. Germany is like the sort of gold standard of an industrial power in the European Union, and their stock market represents like between one and a half and 2% of the global weighted market cap of the stock market. And Doug, you found this interesting piece by Lawrence Hamtill about the revenues that are derived by the S&P 500 from foreign and domestic regions. What did it say related to specifically to Europe? Yeah, I think this was a major concern of mine looking at this data coming out of Europe last week and seeing that the price of electricity has basically gone up by 10 times in the last really two years. And so one of my first reactions to that was, well, what is that going to do to discretionary spending in Europe? And how is that going to impact earnings, corporate earnings for the S&P 500, which the S&P 500, even though 500 largest companies in America are based in America, headquartered in America, not all of their, obviously not all of their revenues come from America. And so one of my concerns was, well, if this is going to at least squash some discretionary spending in Europe, because more of that spending goes to non-discretionary sources, paying to keep the lights on, keep the heat on. What is that going to do to corporate earnings? So Liz Ann Saunders, who's the chief economist at Charles Schwab, she posted this in 2021. That's the S&P 500 revenue exposure by region and country, according to uh, Dow Jones and FactSet, which is another research source. In the European Union, 11% of revenue for the S&P 500 is derived by the European Union. And so, of course, that's a major player. That's the second largest behind North America for S&P 500 companies and should and will have an impact on corporate earnings, but not to the extent that it's a major, major, major issue for the earnings power of S&P 500 companies. 70% of earnings comes from North America. And so, although it's not good to have rising electricity costs in Europe and the potential to have major suffering there, I see this as something that can be weathered by the major American companies. Yeah, I think it's really interesting from the perspective of, I've seen a lot of reports on Twitter about how certain individuals, electricity bills are going to be in the thousands of euros a month. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because I think that from what I could find online, a lot of the countries themselves on a country level basis are going to try to protect their consumers or protect their citizens by putting rate caps and offering subsidies, et cetera. So it'll be interesting to see how it ultimately affects the debt of these countries and also the end consumers that may have their discretionary spending impacted because their cost of living just by keeping the lights on, keeping the heat on, et cetera, increases. Like I'd mentioned, it's pretty interesting to me how Europe has really declined from the vision that I had of Europe as an adolescent and in college and in grad school was that it was really an important part of the global economy. And that's really kind of diminished over time. And we've talked about this at length as well, too, but it's really something that you see just from the standpoint of their currency and from the standpoint of their individual GDPs, et cetera. But you also see it from the stock market returns of these countries relative to the United States 
And going basically back from 2009, over the past 100 years or so, the, the United States and the international markets were basically at parity from a return standpoint. And over the last 13 or so years, the U.S. has just absolutely dominated international. And the question is that there's a premium that exists between the U.S. and international. You pay for a higher value for the same level of earnings in the U.S. than you do in international. But what does that actually equate to? And Doug, you found a really interesting piece from Dan Rasmussen on this topic. And what is your sort of impression as it relates to, do you think that there's going to be any sort of mean reversion? Meaning, do you think that things are going to go back to their historical norms where the United States and international performs on relative par with each other? Or do you think there's going to be some sort of secular disparity between the returns of these two international and domestic? We've talked about this in prior podcasts, but although I do think that America is the best place to be, I don't think that there is a structural shift in the way that valuations for companies, whether domestic or international, are going to be represented in global markets. And so the article really just talks about long-term evidence versus short-term trends. And this is also a competing article or complementary article from the guys at O'Shaughnessy related to this. But really, it breaks down growth of a portfolio in three components or growth of a stock in three components. One is earnings growth, one is dividends, and one is multiple, so price to earnings, contraction or expansion. And historically, with the S&P 500, if you go way back, there's really no component of multiple expansion or contraction that contributes to total return for a stock, meaning 100% of your growth in a stock is going to come from the earnings capacity and dividend capacity of the underlying company. And that multiple expansion, so price-to-earnings growth or price-to-earnings decline, is really a short-term phenomenon just based upon speculation in the markets. If people are bullish, then price-to-earnings ratios get higher. If they're bearish, they get lower, but those will normalize over time. Historically, there hasn't really been much of a premium that the U.S. has gotten over international indices. I think the recent premium that we've gotten is because the U.S. markets have more tech exposure than the international markets. And so the tech companies have been on a major bull run since the early 2010s. And that expansion of price to earnings ratios compared to international markets, which are more banking centric, material centric, cyclicals, et cetera, have really lagged. And Lawrence Hamtill, who's somebody we follow closely, has really broken this down quite well and shown that if you actually look at the underlying components of these indices and if you weight them equally by sector, so you know, US may be 20% tech, international may be 10% tech. Well, let's just normalize this and look at the underlying components for each sector. The price to earnings ratios are not that different. And I think that's going to be the case going forward. It's just that US has more of a tech exposure. So it's it looks like it's more higher valued. Rasmussen goes into this and says, you know, international markets that are such a steep discount to U.S. markets, and he believes in international diversification. And so he's not buying these short-term trends that the U.S. is just the best place to be forever and that there's not going to be any reversion to the mean. I think that's the case. I mean, it's hard to say, though, that you know, right now I'm going to put money in Europe because of everything that's going on with the uh, 
you know, the energy crisis there. I think if you look at companies, you know, the input costs for especially manufacturing companies in Europe to try to manufacture products on the continent, well, those input costs just went way up. If you look at consumers that are trying to you know, decide what to spend money on, well, those decisions become a lot less because their energy costs are increasing. And so it's hard to make the case. Maybe the markets are already discounting that. And, and if markets are efficient, they would be. But it is hard to make the case right now that there's any better place to be than the United States, which is why, I mean, we've had a bias towards the United States for a long time within portfolios. But but yeah, I would expect over a long period of time there to be a normalization but when you're actually staring at what's going on in the world, it's hard to make the case to go anywhere but the, the U.S. Right. I don't see any bright spots, honestly. If you look at China has some major political issues that are going on right now. They've got a property bust. Property bust. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And the government has intervened in a huge way into their technology sector. It's like these quote unquote blue chip Chinese companies like Alibaba and JD are off 50 and 60 percent from their highs. Japan has major demographic issues. They have a declining population rate, which is not really good for an economy when you have fewer young people taking care of more elderly. Africa, there's 30 plus countries on the continent, and there's all kinds of political issues that have historically plagued Africa. Obviously, Europe and Russia, et cetera, has a lot of negativity going on right now. It's hard to find any sort of positive news, I guess, and South America is the other one. South America has major political issues as well, too. But you're right. I mean, if you look at the sort of price to earn, if you find an equivalent American company, you can find one most likely that's half the price and has similar fundamentals, like from a price to earnings standpoint or revenue standpoint, but it might be priced at half the American company because it's just located outside of the United States. And that's what Rasmussen's article is all about. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. The thing that I think has been fascinating to shift gears is the whole narrative behind oil and gas and ESG. Did you see that the University of Texas, their endowment is now basically at the same level as, was it Yale or Harvard? I don't know. It's which Harvard. It was yeah. Harvard. So it was the bigger of the two. So, and there is actually a piece about it. Let me see if I can find it here. Just to define ESG, for those who don't understand the term or are hearing it for the first time, Essentially, what's happened in the last 10 years is pensions, endowments. There's been a political move globally and in the United States to move away from carbon-intensive companies, specifically carbon-intensive companies, although you can throw in there companies with poor governance. So you know, diversity of board, diversity of executive team, hiring practices, etc. But the big piece of that is environmental and environmental is anything that is carbon intensive gets a poor score from an ESG rating perspective. The latest issues, obviously, in Europe has exposed that sort of major issue with ESG in that energy independence, or at least less energy dependence on foreign, especially aggressive foreign countries, is a national security issue. And so there's this competing stance of, yes, we want to move towards less carbon intensive companies and try to not invest in those companies. But at the same time, what are you sacrificing by doing so? And I think we're seeing that in Europe. And so the move in the United States has been to not invest in these 
core environmental companies. Texas has taken a different stance because Texas is the center of the oil and gas universe in the United States and energy is on a tear in the last couple of years. So I tend to side with the Texas component here just because I think if you look at input costs, we talked about this with Ian Bezek in May, but you can be as renewable focused as you want if you don't have a foundation in fossil fuels, whether it's natural gas or oil then you could be really exposed. And that's what's happening in Europe or nuclear on top of that. It's interesting that I saw that the a major political party in Germany, for example, is the Greens that are basically pro-renewable. So like they're the second or third biggest political party in Germany has made it their sole devotion to basically get to rid themselves of nuclear energy and oil and gas and shift towards renewables, but they're dealing with the ramifications of that right now. So there's all these these unforeseen consequences for a lot of these ideas that sound good in theory, like let's shift to renewables, which is a great idea in theory, but there are potential causes and effects of all these, like specifically national defense concerns and what Europe is going through right now. I actually saw Elon Musk today said that there's a need for and Elon Musk is the CEO of Tesla, which is the largest electric car company. And he's also has a, a battery component, et cetera. This is somebody who's very pro-renewable, et cetera. He even said that there needs to be additional discovery and searching for natural resources like oil and gas in the future. There has to be some pragmatism that comes into place. And hopefully, this is the outcome of this particular situation. I saw in Germany that the Greens finally acceded to the idea of not shutting down some nuclear plants this particular winter. Germany is going to have a few more nuclear plants online. And another interesting article that UBS posted, and I'll read this, and this is in oil demand holds up in Norway despite record electric car sales. And this says in September, electric car sales, this is in December of 2021, electric car sales reach a record 77.5% share of car sales in Norway, yet surprisingly, Oil demand is higher than 10 years ago when the first zero emission cars were sold in the country. So bottom line is, is that this is not going to be an immediate transition. The whole collective idea behind renewables is fabulous, but the idea of getting ahead of yourself from a policy perspective is not prudent, and that's really sort of played out in Europe. I think it's also going to be interesting to see how this all plays out over time because things are not going to be as quick to switch to renewables even in a place like Norway, where they're selling mostly renewable cars, that really has indented oil demand a whole lot because you can't run industrials-related equipment on electric batteries, planes, et cetera. I mean, that's not going to happen overnight. I think the policy mistake here was just that there's a complete separation in you know what is a renewable energy source and what is not. I think the middle ground, there's really two middle grounds here. They went all in on hydro, wind, and solar, and didn't really think about the carbon efficiency of nuclear. I think that that was number one and a major mistake. Now, nuclear has its drawbacks, and it's had its major events in the past, namely you know, Fukushima in Japan, Chernobyl in Ukraine. Uh, and those are scary uh, events, but they're rare. The second component is just carbon capture technology that was never really even discussed, that yes, we have these carbon intensive energy sources, specifically oil, gas, and other fossil fuels, coal, et cetera. 
but is there a way to reduce the carbon footprint of drilling for these particular resources? And that's where carbon capture technology has really come into play. I'm surprised that policymakers and investment committees at pensions and endowments didn't really pay attention to the investment in these particular areas. And one thing about crisis events like this is that it really causes a re-examination of policy. And so hopefully the outcome of this, what could be a rough couple of years for those energy dependent nations is to shift focus away from, you know, lower carbon footprint at all costs to at least some sort of remediation of carbon intensity through carbon capture or, you know, improvement of nuclear facilities, expansion of nuclear facilities, et cetera. That could be a long-term benefit for humanity with some short-term pain in the urinal. And the interesting thing, too, from a policy standpoint, I'd be curious to see how this all matriculates into the investment landscape with this whole concept of ESG. In terms of the idea behind there's material wealth being shifted towards places like the University of Texas because they didn't let these sort of overarching concerns manipulate their investment philosophy. And this is a quote from William Goetzman, the professor of finance and management studies at Yale University. And it says that at a time when other colleges are shedding fossil fuel investments, Texas is having a windfall. The University of Texas is having a windfall when everyone's looking at a potential cash crunch and adjusting your portfolio for social concerns is not costless. And so that the same thing applies to these nations and states, et cetera, that make these sort of policy changes as a result of these big picture ideas that make sense, but maybe not so much from an all or nothing type of thing. And it also makes sense from a investment return type of thing. As a result of this, there's been wealth that's moved across the country and looks like the University of Texas is in a really strong situation as a result of the choices that they made. Yeah. And these are going to be cyclical issues as well. In good times, ESG seems great because you're not really sacrificing anything. But in a commodity crunch, supply chain crunch, when energy is scarce and commodity investment has been low for a long period of time, something we should get into in a future episode. When there's a major increase in commodity prices over a short period of time, those that you know didn't fall for the policy of the day are the ones that come out on top. I think that that's sort of an investment mindset as well. If you don't have that herd mentality, there are going to be at times that you look like a zero and times you look like a hero. And I think that's what the University of Texas is experiencing right now. ESG was like the absolute best place to be for like up until this sort of last cycle too, because it was just like Apple, Facebook, maybe not Facebook, yeah. but Apple, Tesla, all these like growthy names because they weren't involved in oil and gas. They had to be underweight energy and industrials. And so you had to be overweight something. So they were overweight tech. And that was like the best trade in the last decade. So Right. There's all of these things play into each other. And it's really interesting to see how these ideas really have ramifications. And And we talked about this before the podcast we had recorded, but you mentioned this astutely that Europe, its importance on the global scale has diminished lately. They still have a lot of strength and power and their economy is still a relatively important one. So their citizens may be shielded to a degree from this energy crunch, but the cause and effect of the price of gas, et cetera, in Europe going up means it's also going up around the world elsewhere, just like the sort of the same issues that 
countries are facing as a result of the rising price of wheat, et cetera, may also result in some secondary ramifications and emerging economies as a result of the price of energy. Yeah, I think that that's a major concern. If, you know, let's say Germany, for example, you know, they've still got a lot of wealth there, especially a lot more wealth than some of these emerging countries in the Middle East, Asia. And so you could see a situation in which they just outbid everybody for gas just to keep their manufacturing facilities running, keep their citizens' lights on, keep the heat on. And so you could see that even though the direct dependent of Russian gas may be Germany, for example, the knock-on effect is that it has an impact in the emerging world. And we could see you know, things pop up like we saw in Sri Lanka or we're seeing in Pakistan now. Citizens are over it and they rise up and like another Arab Spring type event occurs. So it's going to be an interesting global stage here for the next, you know, at least next 12 months as the gas crisis in Europe is really you know, filtering through the rest of the world. I agree. There's never a dull moment. It seems like the period before COVID, maybe it was like sort of there wasn't a whole lot going on. But since then, it seems like every six, 12 months or something new. We'll look back on this as like a journal uh, when we listen to old episodes a few years down the line and, uh, and just figure out what we were thinking at the time. But we're probably completely wrong on everything, I'm sure. But, uh, right, exactly. It'll be interesting to see. <laughs> right. The price of oil may go back negative again like it was in COVID. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, that's the interesting thing about this world. Nobody knows. And hindsight will always be 2020. Right. But anyway... Thank you guys so much for joining us today. This Lanyard podcast with Greg and Doug Stokes, Stokes Family Office. If you enjoyed this, please share it with your friends, family, and colleagues, and give it a five-star like. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.